Well, good morning, church. As we continue in worship together, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 will be in verses 16 through 20 together this morning. My name is Kenneth Brock. I have the joy of serving as the middle school director here at Open Door. Uh, My wife, Catherine, and I have been here for about two and a half years. We've got a little girl named Maggie. Uh, We love being part of this church family here at Open Door. I know some of you are nervous right now. Uh, It's not every Sunday they let the middle school director get up here, all right? So I know there might be some fear, some anxiety, especially if you're a guest. I do want to put your fear at ease, though. They only let me get up here once a year. So if you don't like it, our senior pastor will be back from sabbatical in just two weeks, all right? So uh, maybe by the end of this service, you'll know why they let me speak to teenagers instead of you every Sunday, all right? But I'm so excited to continue this series with you. Uh, We've been in Acts 2. We've been talking about the five devotions of a healthy and a vibrant church. We talked about being devoted to the scriptures, the church, the gospel. And this morning, we're going to talk about being devoted to the mission, being devoted to the mission of the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says of that early church that every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this church was about their mission, And they were about adding others to that mission as as well. So I've got a little bit of audience participation I need right here. And and not to make it a competition, but the nine o'clock service this morning, they had their coffee and they were ready to go, okay? They got three out of four. So I'm going to give you four mission statements and I'm going to need some verbal response here. I'm going to need for you to name the company that this mission statement is from. All right, can we do that this morning, 11 o'clock? All right, I'm not feeling confident now, but we'll, we'll see, all right? So again, they went three out of four. I want you to go four for four right here, all right? So number one, this mission statement says, to be America's quick, best quick service restaurant at winning and keeping customers. Chick-fil-A, there we go, one for one, all right? Number two, we save people money so that they can live better. Walmart, all right, two for two, let's go, all right? I'm feeling pretty good now. Number three, entertain the world. Netflix, all right, here's the last one. All right, you can go four for four and hold this forever over the nine o'clock service. All right, here we go. To be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might wanna buy online and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible price. The Beast, Amazon, you got it. All right, four for four, let's give yourselves a hand right there. All right. All right, and I do that. Now I know that your vocal cords are warmed up for the rest of the sermon, okay? So we're good to go. So each of these statements from these companies, each of these mission statements, they summarize what this company is about. For Chick-fil-A, they are, everything they do from their drive-through to their playgrounds, everything they do are all about winning and keeping customers. And they do a good job of that as well, right? So here, and as we're talking about this idea of mission statement, I want you to think of these companies, think of these organizations as they sell you products, as they sell you services. So for us as the church, we want to ask the question, well, do we have a mission statement? Is there something that we can summarize, something that we can say, hey, this is what we are about. If these other companies are about this, entertainment, keeping, keeping customers, whatever it may be, what are we as the church about? What is our mission For us as the church, Christ wants us to be about his mission. But unfortunately, as sinful people, you and I can often fall short of that mission that he has given us. God's people throughout the Bible and even now, we often fall short. We often pursue other things, maybe even good things, to the neglect of this main thing, this main mission. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask and try to answer two questions. 
The first question is, what is our mission as the church? Could we, could we have a mission statement? And when I say the church, I'm referring to all Christians everywhere, right? The global church. What's our mission as the church? And then we'll apply it here at our context at Open Door as well. And then the second question I want to ask is, well, how do, we, how do we go about accomplishing that mission? What is our mission? And then how do we go about accomplishing that mission? I want to take you to a text this morning that I think helps us to answer both of these questions in Matthew chapter 28. And before we read the text, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're a guest, maybe you came with a member from Open Door, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. We're going to talk a lot about what it means to be a member, what it means to be on a mission, but I'm so glad you're here because this really is the crux. This really is the summary of who we are as a people of God. When we talk about following Jesus, like this is why we covenant, this is why we come together as a local church. It's because of these verses that summarize the gospel message right here. So if you still have questions afterwards about what this means, we'd love to talk to you as a staff out in the lobby, or I would encourage you to talk with whoever you came here with this morning as well. Ask an open door member, uh, what, what is this guy talking about? What is the mission of the church? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, all right? Matthew chapter 28, leading up until this point, Jesus Christ has died, he was buried, and then he has risen again, which causes a little bit of a ruckus locally. The guards who were uh, guarding his tomb, they are bribed to lie about what really happens. And then Jesus wants to have this final meeting with his disciples. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16, God's word reads like this. It says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, some worshiped and some doubted, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, I pray that you would bless this time together this morning. Comfort us through your spirit as we go with the gospel and take this to all the nations. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. If you look up back in, in Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 10. Jesus had some people who came to the tomb after he had died and then was resurrected. And he told them in verse 10, go and tell my brothers, these disciples to leave for Galilee. And so that's where we start off in verse 16. They are in Galilee. This is where Jesus has asked them to come. It's appropriate that this whole great commission is set in Galilee. This is where Jesus first started. When, when Jesus first started preaching in Matthew chapter four, Galilee was where it happened. Galilee is also where some of his disciples, the two sets of brothers, James and John, Peter and Andrew, this is the setting for where Jesus first called these disciples. So in a real sense, Galilee is this first full circle moment for his followers. It's where he first called them to follow him. It's where he's gonna give them these final marching orders as well. So you have to imagine this scene from the set of these 11 guys, these 11 disciples of Jesus. These young guys, they've left everything over the last three years to follow Jesus. Jesus is this interesting teacher. He, he teaches in a way that nobody's ever taught before. He teaches as one with authority, but also he, he does things that no one has ever done before either. And he teaches that, that he is the one who has been promised since the opening pages of the Bible. He is the seed that we've talked about throughout the Genesis series. And then he dies, he's buried. And for a couple of days, his disciples are freaking out. They are scared out of their mind. And then they start to hear rumors. We've, people have seen Jesus walking around and then he appears to them. 
And so finally, you can understand why in verse 17, when they come to meet Jesus, some worship him, but some are also doubting. And friends, these are the two reactions that you and I can have to Jesus as well. We can either worship him for who he is and believe who he says he is, or we doubt him and we do not honor him as Lord of our life. So before we get into the actual command here in the Great Commission, I want you just to notice how there are two promises from Jesus, one that begins this Great Commission and one that ends this Great Commission. So look at verse 18 with me. In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's a pretty big statement. All authority. Jesus is saying that he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. It reminds me of a scene from the greatest Disney movie of all time, The Lion King, all right? So early on in The Lion King, there's this scene where Simba, the young cub, wakes up Mufasa, who is the Lion King. He wakes him up super early in the morning. He's, he's getting his dad up and they go to the top of Pride Rock. And as they look out across the land, Simba is just amazed, like his jaw is dropping. And Mufasa says this famous line. He says, everywhere the light touches is our kingdom. I practiced this morning to do my James Earl Jones voice, but it just didn't go well. So I just decided to use my voice instead. But Simba is looking out and he's amazed, right? Everywhere that he sees the light, which is pretty much everything he can see, that's where his dad, the king, holds all authority. I, th I think of that scene when I read this statement from Jesus, because essentially Jesus is again at the top of a mountain, just like Mufasa and Simba, and, and his disciples are looking out. They can see all around them. And Jesus is saying, hey, no matter where you go, in heaven, on earth, does not matter. Wherever you go, I am the king and I hold authority there. And in the Lion King, there's this one shadowy part, the elephant graveyard, right, where the hyenas are. There are no elephant graveyards in the kingdom of God. There's no place that we can go where God does not already have authority. This is the first promise that he gives us in this great commission. And the reason that Jesus has been given, notice that language in verse 18, the reason that he has been given this authority is because of what we call the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the king, left heaven and he came down to earth to be with us. The Bible teaches that because of our sin towards a holy God, that we fall short. There is no way we can live a perfect life. We lie, we lust, we cheat, we're greedy, we do all these things. And so the Bible teaches that instead of us trying to obtain a certain status in this life, the king who is perfect actually left his throne to come to us. In other words, Jesus has lived the life that we should have lived. He has died the death that we should have died. And those who trust and place their faith in Jesus According to the good news of the gospel, we have life when we should have had death. And it's because of this good news, it's because of this gospel that Jesus has been given all authority. And the gospel is central to our mission. If there is no gospel, there is no mission for the church. So Jesus promises his authority, his authority because of the gospel message. But then also notice verse 20, notice this second promise that bookends the Great Commission. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love that. And this is how Matthew's gospel began in the very first chapter. Matthew chapter one, verse 23 says, you will name him Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. So from the beginning of Matthew's gospel until the end, God is telling us, hey, I am here with you. Not only does this king send us out in all authority, not only does he have the power to do so, this king has not only come to save us, but he has come to stay with us as well. So Jesus promises his authority and he promises his presence. So friends, listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, 
The great commission will be accomplished because of these two promises of Jesus. He comes in authority because he has saved us. He has defeated death. He has authority over everything and he stays with us as well. So the reason that Matthew chapter 24, the reason that Jesus can say that the end will come, the gospel will be preached in all the nations. It's not because of anything that you and I do on our own. It is because of King Jesus. He holds all authority and it's his presence that goes with us as we take the gospel. Amen. It's because of the authority and the presence of Jesus. And so here in between these two promises, we have what's known as the command, as the great commission. In verse 18 and 19, he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. And that word translated make disciples there, that is the the main verb, the imperative, the command in these verses. Everything else in these verses goes underneath what it means to make a disciple. They're they are participles, right? They, they support the main idea of making disciples. So as a church, we are after disciples, not just converts. Disciples are active participants in the mission. And if I could use a sports analogy for just a second, disciples are players in the game. They're not just fans in the stands. So if the mission of the church is to make disciples, then how do we accomplish that mission? Three actions from these important verses, and we'll take the rest of the time and talk about these three actions. So how do we accomplish this mission of making disciples? Action number one, we go with the gospel. Look at verse 19 again. He says, go therefore. So again, the therefore, it's talking about this authority, this power that Jesus sends us out in. Because of this, you go and make disciples of all nations. The word for nations here, it's referring to the diverse groups of people all over the world, the ethne, where we get ethnicities and ethnic groups. Jesus is commanding us as his church, as his followers, as his disciples to intentionally invest our time, our money, our resources into making disciples of all nations. And friends, oftentimes when we read a verse like this, we think that Jesus might be referring to a select group of people to go, right? We think of, oh man, those missionaries, such as the ones that we'll send out later in this service, we think of them. But this this idea of going is for all of us. This idea of going, again, is tethered to the gospel though. That's why this, this first action is to go with the gospel. Because if we just go, if we just go, that we're not chasing waterfalls, we're not just traveling, but we are going with a purpose, right? So when we send this dear family out in just a few moments together, just their going is not actually accomplishing the Great Commission. It's going with the gospel. It's going to make disciples. We can all go, we can all travel, but unless we are doing the Great Commission, unless we are about making disciples as we go, then we're actually not accomplishing the Great Commission at all. The verses that we read this morning for the public reading of scripture, they Uh, tell us that God has had this desire for worldwide followers since the opening page of the Bible. Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And to these image bearers, notice what he says in verse 28, he blesses them and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So the first recorded command that we have in scripture, even before God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from this tree, the first thing that God says to his image bearers is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And God wants this worldwide following of image bearers to give him glory. When we bear God's image across the world, this brings him glory. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 96, sing a new song to the Lord, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. 
Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim his salvation from day to day. Verse three, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. So God's desire, do you see how Matthew 28 is a reiteration of Genesis 1? God has desired since the beginning of the Bible, this worldwide fellowship of believers, all these followers, all these image bearers. Commenting on the Great Commission, Dr. Ben Merkel says, gathering worshipers from one or some of kinds of people would ascribe glory to God, but gathering worshipers from some of all kinds of people ascribe supreme universal glory to him. He is worthy of the worship of all the nations. Amen. This is why we go. We go because God himself is worthy of the worship of all the nations. We don't do it to spread our name. We don't do it to spread the name of our local assembly open door. We do it because God gets the glory from these worshipers when they come to worship him. Often when we think of the Great Commission and we think about this idea of people groups, we often think of it as, a, as an out there sort of endeavor, sort of like an adventure, right? You go somewhere and you've got these people who have never heard the gospel. But friends, the reality is, is that the nations are coming to us even here in our own backyards. According to the latest census data from 2020, about 12% of the people that live in the Triangle area are, in, are foreign born. So that means about one out of every nine people that you and I meet at the food lion down the road, at our schools, at our jobs, at soccer practice, at baseball practice, about one out of every nine people that we meet here in this area are not born in the U.S. About 16% of people in the triangle speak a language at home other than English. Now that's not to the neglect of international missions, but friends, the nations are coming here to us. And then there are even people who have been born here their entire lives who need to hear the good news of the gospel as well. So when you hear these verses, I don't want you to think of, hey, I need to go somewhere in order to accomplish this. No, we, we need you to go with the gospel where you are. At the end of our service each week, we say these words, go with the gospel. And we do have in mind international mission trips when we say that, but we also have in mind your workplace. We also have in mind your home. We also have in mind your baseball practice, your soccer practice, your grocery store. Going with the gospel is a full-time endeavor. Going with the gospel would not be necessary if every lost person in the world came into our doors here at this local assembly. But because they cannot, because everybody can't fit in here, we go with the gospel. We take it out there. So how do, how do we go about this mission of making disciples? Action number one, go with the gospel. Action number two, we show the gospel. Look again at verse 19. So after Jesus says this about making disciples of all the nations, he says, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word that's, that's translated baptize here literally means to submerge. So but imagine this drum kit is not here, but behind me, we have this baptismal pool. So this is why when we do baptism, we don't do baptism and, and put you underneath the water just to get your hair wet or just to give you a cool t-shirt. We do this because we believe that this is what Jesus has commanded here in the scripture, all right? And I just want you to know, 100% of the people that have gone in this tub have also come out of it, right? Like we don't have any bodies just laying back here in the pool, right? That would not do us any good, all right? It would probably be illegal in some in places, right? Everybody who goes underneath the water comes up because this is a picture of the gospel, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come to bring us from death to life, not the good news that he has come to the dead so that we could stay dead. 
Paul makes this point in Romans 6. He emphasizes how this baptism is a picture of, how it shows the gospel. He says, therefore, since we were buried with him by baptism into death, that's going underneath the water, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we may too walk in newness of life. Do you hear the language there, right? Christ was lowered into death, but he did not stay there, right? We're not trying to see how long you can hold your breath underwater. We are wanting to bring you back up because it is a picture of the gospel. Those who have placed their faith in Christ don't stay dead. Therefore, we don't stay under the water. We are raised to life because this baptism is a picture of the gospel. Baptism is an outward declaration of an inward salvation. So when we baptize people here in just a few weeks, we do this every month at Open Door. Again, we're we're gonna have a pastor back there who will say something similar to this, that you are buried with Christ in likeness of his death and then raised to walk in newness of life. Do you see how this baptism, how water baptism by going under and then being brought back, do you see how that's a picture of the gospel? This is what Christ has done in our life. So these these baptismal waters, they do not save us, right? There's nothing special about this water. They come through pipes just like they do in your home, but it's a picture of the gospel, how we were once dead to our sin and then we are raised to life. It's a symbol, it's a picture. It's sort of like on on a wedding day, you think of like the wedding bands, right? I remember a few years ago, Kat and I have been married almost three years now. And on our wedding day, we had these bands and we, we stood holding each other's hands in, in front of the, uh, our officiant, our pastor, and we put these bands on one another. Kat already had her ring, and so I put the band to go with her ring, and I put my band on as well. But the interesting thing about these bands, right, when, when we put these bands on ourselves on this stage, it didn't really change how we felt about each other in that moment, right? It, it, so it wasn't like when Catherine put this band on me, it wasn't like all of a sudden I went, like this is the woman now, right? Now that she has put this band on my ring, now I love her, right? No, we had already made that commitment. We had already made that commitment to come to the wedding, to be in front of everybody. And so this band stood as a symbol to one another that we were covenanting together, that we loved each other. But friends, listen, this wedding band was also a symbol to the rest of the world that was watching us that day. So that for the rest of our lives, nobody ever has to verbally ask us if we are married. We have a picture, we have a sign on our hand. People can see, people can see that picture of our wedding. And it's the same way with baptism. Baptism is a picture showing the rest of the world this commitment that you have made. Just like Catherine putting that ring on me didn't make me automatically fall in love with her in that moment, right? That had already happened, right? She's had my heart for a long time. And so that moment was a consummation of our relationship. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is a picture of an inward decision that you have made, but it's like a wedding ring. So if I could be blunt for just a moment, baptism is not just about you. It is also for us. It is an encouragement to your brothers and sisters for us to remember our own salvation, for us to remember when we were brought from death to life, it is a picture to us, but it's also a picture to those who have not been saved. It is a picture of the gospel that Christ, through his power, has raised us from death to life. In his commentary on these verses, David Platt writes, it's not that one has to be baptized in order to become a Christian, but once you are a Christian, your public declaration of faith in Christ necessarily involves baptism. To neglect baptism is to dishonor and to disobey Christ. Christ commands baptism here as part of discipleship. Why? Because it is a picture of, it shows the gospel. 
So when we go to all the nations and we're baptizing them, it is an opportunity for us as the saints to be encouraged. And it's an opportunity to declare the gospel to those who are not as well. Baptism is a picture of, it shows the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, but have not followed through with baptism, and we'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards. We'll have some staff out in the lobby. But these verses, this is why we do this, right? We don't do it just because this is our tradition. This is our denomination. We do this because it is commanded by Christ. And it's because of, it's a picture of what's happened in our own lives as well. So how do we make disciples? Action number one, we go with the gospel. Action number two, we show the gospel through believers' baptism. And then finally, action number three, we also teach the gospel. How do we show, how do we make disciples? We go with the gospel, we show the gospel, and we teach the gospel. Look at verse 20 with me. Jesus says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Your version might say, uh, teaching them to obey or teaching them to keep, teaching them to follow. Mine right here says observe. All the same idea, right? We're not just after Bible memorization. We are after application as well. We want to know how to keep, how to obey these commands of God. What does it mean to love God, love others? What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to give? What does it mean to go? What to apply these as well. I think if I could be honest with you, I think this is the action that I personally struggle with the most. And I think that's because, and maybe you'll resonate with this, I think when it comes to teaching the gospel, there's a couple of faulty motivations that we can have when we're discipling other disciples. Number one, I think that we can teach or we can know the gospel with a motivation to just to, of pride, honestly, to, to show off what we know, right? So in this sense, we would say that we're, we're raising up uh, Bible trivia masters, right? People who know what the Bible says, but maybe not actually do it. On the other hand, I think that we can also have a faulty motivation when we're teaching the commands of God, but we teach them in such a way that we say, you, you have to do these in order to earn God's favor. So in this sense, we would sort of be like the Pharisees, right? Who oftentimes believe they had to do all 613 steps of the law in order for God to love them. But the Bible teaches that God gives his law out of grace, out of love. And so we obey through graceful obedience. We don't memorize, we don't do these commands of scripture to be really good at Bible trivia or to impress people with our knowledge. We also don't do them to earn God's favor because he's already given us that through his son. But we teach and we obey the commands of God because of the love that he has shown us through the gospel. So what does it look like to disciple? What does it look like to teach the gospel? When I was growing up, I grew up in a small town in Northeast Georgia. My grandpa had this big garden and I enjoyed being there with him during the summers, especially when I didn't have school. And now if I was actually helpful to him, that's probably another story for another day, right? But I enjoyed being out here with him. My grandpa was the one who had a green thumb. So I was sort of out there for the grunt work. And my dad, my dad would come some as well, but my grandpa, he would have these rows of corn. He would have squash, zucchini, peppers that were too hot for any human to have. And he would have all this stuff. But the one that was always amazing to me was the tomato plant. And I don't personally like tomatoes, but somehow I got roped into helping with them. And so my grandpa, he would give me these stakes, these poles. And so I would put them in the ground, like in a little circle, five to six poles. And then he would bring out this chicken wire as well. It would sort of wrap this chicken wire around these poles. And so if you're picturing this, it's think about like a cylinder, right? About this big circular all the way around. And so we would plant these tomato plants all the way around the circle. 
And something pretty amazing would happen. This, these, this chicken wire and these stakes would create this sort of trellis. And as the tomato plant would grow, it would actually grow up the wire. It would grow vertically. All the other vines and everything in the garden, they would grow horizontally like the watermelon, right? You don't see like watermelon growing up on these poles, but you would have these tomato plants that were doing just that. We'd have these little cylinders throughout the garden. And I think that's a beautiful picture of discipleship because as we, as we plant these seeds and as we make disciples, in essence, when we are teaching the commands of God, we are saying, hey, this is the trellis on which you are to grow. This is the way that you are to grow. This is the path that you are to follow. I think this is what the uh, author in Proverbs mean in Proverbs 22, 6, when it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. There will be a day when you and I are no longer here, but for disciples, we provide this path. We provide this way to follow. And if I could, if I could switch analogies for just a second, I know some of you are avid indoorsmen or indoors women, so you don't enjoy being out in the garden. Uh, there's a show called The Mandalorian for you Star Wars fans out there. The Mandalorians have this saying when they're teaching their younglings, they say, this is the way. Every time they teach something, every time they teach a new rule or teach a new command, they say, this is the way. In essence, they are saying the same thing, right? This is the way, this is the path where you to follow. When, when this new generation of people, this new generation of followers are now leading, this is the path that you are to go on. So whether you resonate with Star Wars or tomato plants, this is, in essence is discipleship. We provide the path through the commands of God on which they are to follow so that when you and I are no longer here, there's no question about where the path is. It's always been the commands of God and it will always continue to be. Teaching isn't complete without obedience. We're providing this trellis through the commands of God. And as disciples who make other disciples, we're not just after head knowledge, we're after heart transformation. It does me no good if I can tell you that I should love God and I should love others, but I don't actually put that into practice. So we began this morning by asking two questions. What is the mission of the church? We said that's to make disciples. And then how do we go about making disciples? How do we go about this mission? And both of these questions can be summarized in our main idea. So our main idea from this text is our mission as the church is to make disciples by going with, by showing and teaching the gospel. Our mission as the church is to make disciples by going with, showing and teaching the gospel. And again, this mission applies to all Christians everywhere. So whether you're here, whether you're leaving in a few months to go across the world, Christians everywhere, this is our mission. But what does it look like here? What does it look like at 9801 Durant Road? What does it look like for Open Door? How can we make disciples here in our midst based on these verses? Let me give you four applications really quick. Number one, first lesson or first application for discipleship. Number one, we can serve in our local church and serve in our local church. Did you know that below our feet right now, there are about 30 volunteers keeping all of our munchkins downstairs, all of our kids. Multiply that by two services, that's 60 every week downstairs at minimum. Multiply that by four weeks. I know we're getting into a lot of math here. 240 people every month to watch our kids just so we can worship together upstairs. In our next gen ministry, just in terms of our kids, we need about 370 volunteers each and every month. So if you're looking for a way to make disciples here at Open Door, we'd love to have you serve with our next generation. What an awesome way to make disciples. They're literally already here where you're coming. So that's an awesome way to make disciples. Number two, we want to promote believers' baptism. 
Again, if you're a believer who has not been baptized, we want you to obey the command of Christ and follow through with baptism. Again, baptism isn't just about you. It is a picture like a wedding ring to the rest of us as well. We'd love to talk to you about that. Number three, we wanna know the word. So before we can teach the word, we want to know the word. We do this through our care group ministries, through our weekend workshops, through this proclamation time on Sundays as well. And number four, we want to support the mission by supporting missions. Support the mission by supporting missions. This morning, we're gonna send some dear friends of ours overseas and they need our support. They need our prayer. They need our financial giving so we can support the mission by supporting missions. So I hope that we can take these four applications here at Open Door and apply them to make disciples here. I started off this morning giving you those four mission statements, right? From from Chick-fil-A, from Walmart, from Amazon, and from Netflix as well. So when a company is evaluating their actions, they're evaluating everything that they do, they evaluate it in terms of their overall mission. It also helps when a company has everybody on the same page, right? Could you imagine at your work, working on a completely different mission than your coworker? That would probably be pretty chaotic if everybody in your company was working on a different mission. And so we as the church, we wanna do the same thing, right? We want to accomplish this mission together. We wanna do it together, just like all these other devotions that we've talked about this summer. Uh, Next Sunday, our little Maggie will be three months old and she is our firstborn. So this summer has been full of uh, all the new experiences for Maggie and for ourselves. And people told us that having a firstborn, you just really have to survive the first 10 to 12 weeks. So I'm living proof that we have, by God's grace, we have made it the first 10 to 12 weeks through the survival mode. But leading up until Maggie was born, there were certain things that Catherine and I would talk about, certain things that we want Maggie to be or certain things that we want her to do, right? So just by way of example, Catherine and I love being outside. We love to go on hikes, we love to play sports. And so that's something that we desire for our kids too. So we desire for Maggie to enjoy being outside. She loves to look at the lights. And so going out to the sun is like a field day, right? It's the brightest light ever. She has no idea what to think about it. But there's also, uh, there's certain non-negotiables in our household. So when the Atlanta Braves are on or the Georgia Bulldogs, we cheer for them and not any other teams. But on a more serious level, we want her to be kind. We want her to love God. We want her to love others. We have all these desires that for her to be, things for her to do. So a couple months ago, when we brought her home for the very first time, here's what we did not do. I I didn't sit her down in her carrier and look at her and say, all right, Maggie, to be a part of this Brock family, here are some things that you need to do, all right? I've got this book right here, this book of Brock, if you will. And in this book, it's going to explain to you everything that you need to know about being a part of our family. This this book, it's got some family history in it. It's got some commands, some things that you need to do. So if you will just read this book and apply it and live it out, then you will be a part of our Brock family. Now, that's what we did not do. And you say that's silly because it would be silly for a couple of reasons. Number one, our three-month-old daughter Unlike the waiter at Cracker Barrel a few weeks ago who gave her a kid's menu and some crayons, we realize, we realize that she cannot read right now. And anything that she puts in her hands very quickly goes to her mouth, all right? So it would be silly to give her a book because we're going to have to teach her how to read, right? She can't read, she can't color, she can't do any of that. But also, secondly, there's going to be some things that we can't fit in a book of Brock, right? We can explain it as best we can, but there's gonna be certain things that we have to show her. 
So just to use the outside example, there's gonna be a point in her life where we actually have to go with her outside. We're gonna have to show her the trees. We're gonna have to show her the leaves. We're gonna have to teach her not to stare at the sun. And then 30 years from now, when she can finally get a cell phone, we might actually have to teach her, we might actually have to teach her that it's good to go outside and not be on her phone at all the times. In other words, to be a part of our Brock family, there are some things that we're gonna have to go, we're gonna have to show, and we're gonna have to teach her. And friends, it is the same way with discipleship. In our church, we don't just give our new disciples a book, the Bible, that tells our family history, that tells our commands. We don't just give it to new believers and say, hey, if you will read this book and you apply everything in it, you will be a part of our family. Just like Maggie, they need to be taught how to read. They need to be shown like, how, what does it look like when we go? What does it look like to show the gospel? We need to teach them the gospel as well. And don't hear me saying that we should not give Bibles to new believers. That's not what I'm saying, right? But I'm saying we should do more than that. It's not enough just to give them a book. We also need to go show and teach. And we do that here at this church, right? That like there will be times when Maggie is here and she's being taught by people other than myself. There will be some of you who have her in class downstairs and you will be teaching her. Students, others in here, there will be times when you place your faith in Christ Jesus and you are in this baptismal pool. Like you are buried into death with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And in front of everybody, our daughter will be shown the gospel. Friends, you've heard the saying that it takes a village to raise a child, but I say to you that it also takes a church to raise a disciple. We cannot expect the mission of the church to be accomplished if we're not making disciples. That's, that's our thrust. That's what we're all about. We're here to make disciples. And because of Christ's authority and because of his presence, he sends us out into the world for the glory of God. God is worthy of the worship of all the nations. So because of Christ's authority and because of Christ's presence, we go with the gospel, we show the gospel, and we teach the gospel to the glory of God. Amen. Father, we praise your name. You are worthy of the worship of all the nations. And because God, you are worthy of the worship of all the nations, you are worthy of our worship here as a local body of believers as well. You are worthy of the worship in our homes. Father, I pray for those in here, for believers, for non-believers. We do all of these actions. We go, we show, and we teach because of the gospel, because of the good news that you have come down from heaven to a cross to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. And because of the gospel, we go. Father, I pray that our church here would be known for making disciples. Again, not in our own ability, but because of your authority, because of your presence. Pray that we would make disciples in the nations, in our country, in our cities, and yes, God, even in our homes as well. Father, we thank you for this time together. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.